sell your tin hat. The next 55 minutes may result in a total change in your lifestyle, your attitudes, and even your brain may shrink. Houses in Fairbanks, Alaska. I mean, where can a man think? Archaeologists exploring the tombs under the pyramids of Giza in Egypt discovered recently a number chiseled into the stone in several conspicuous places by an artisan of a long forgotten race. The numerals, when interpreted into the figures of modern day, read as follows. A sinister number carved on the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza. The number reads 2520. We repeat. No, no, that's not right. Speaking of forgotten races. Please take them marbles out of your mouth, kid. All right, don't throw up here. 2520. That is the mystery number. If any of you out there tonight hold the ticket stub, mark 2520. You are in line for some surprises. You have won the eternal solar mystery race jackpot. The meaning of the numerals remained a mystery for quite some time until a probing mathematician came up with the fact that the number 2520 is divisible by any number from 1 to 10. It is the only possible number of all the number combinations in the entire lexicon of numbers that can be so divided. <laughs> Thank you, Marnie. I just thought you ought to know that there's so many things out there that you got to worry about. Now it's 2520. Why did they carve that on the bottom of a pyramid? And by the way, speaking of uh, mysterious... You see, it's, it's the Egyptians, they, you know. They had no idea that somebody, 422 million years later, would wonder about that. Now, now that could be just the serial number of that particular pyramid. Well, we put serial numbers on everything. I mean, Kansas Soup, anything's got a serial number. That could be just a serial number, that pyramid. Okay, just a coincidence, you know. <laughs> Something simple as that. <laughs> really? <laughs> and we're sitting here with slide rules trying to figure out what mysterious knowledge that the ancients had that we do not have. Which, by the way, is another one of the great mystery questions of our age. We'd like to tonight salute Philip Kelly. Please, would you give me my number two tape there, my salute music? Tonight, as mystery marches on, evil and triumph of good is once again long delayed. And a mystery figure flying a large green horse gallops out of the screen. He waves his firehead. 
kicks the large green horse in the rump. The horse bucks and throws him off into the weeds. Another cereal goes down a drain. We'd like to salute Philip Kelly, an English rock guitar player, who last week threw fireworks around while he was feeling high and destroyed 34,000 acres of forest by fire, and they don't have many acres of forest in England. He was ordered by the judge to spend his four-month sentence serving with the Forest Service fire crew. Which wasn't easy since his hair was over eight feet long. And he had webbed feet. And wore highly inflammable jeans made out of Kleenex. And today, Philip Kelly is the most enthusiastic member of the firefighting crew fighting flames in the drought-ridden woods all over the country and has given up marijuana and says he will become a Mormon. Bring up, there's a lesson in it for all of us. That was tonight's salute to the New York Jets. And, uh, hi, George, it's, uh, it's uh, exciting. Now, by the way, we'd like to, speaking of terrible moments in man's life, we, uh, of course, since it is a Saturday night, you know, and, uh, yeah, it is, after all, let's face it, this, what are you going to do, you know? If, you, if, you're, if you're in such bad trouble, friends, that you're listening to the show, you're listening to the radio on Saturday night, well, you're in trouble. I mean, Saturday night, it's like, it's like musicians, you know. Uh, it, it used to be that a musician was ready to commit suicide if he had a night off on New Year's. If you weren't working on New Year's, give up the guitar. <laughs> I mean, forget it, you know. Even the accordions, you know, the whole bit. Well, if you're sitting around listening to the radio tonight, Saturday night, uh, what can I say, friend? Well, of course, there's those, those unkind folk who can say, uh, if you're sitting around doing a radio show on Saturday night, uh, <laughs> please, uh, Marty, if you will, uh, if you will, please. I just feel in the mood here. I just feel in the mood for a little sneaky stuff. Anytime. You know, uh, I, I think uh, since this is the end of the summer, which is sad, you know, I love summer. And uh, since this is the end of the summer, and this will be, the last occasion that I will have to play this particular piece until next year, till the next solstice. Isn't that what they call that thing that goes arching through the sky there once in a while? Or is that Apollo? No, wouldn't it be groovy if, if, uh, if a great male fist were to come down tomorrow with lightning bolts sticking out of it? Can you imagine how Lyle Van would announce that on the news? Or would they put that on the weather? You know, a giant male fist came down and destroyed Babylon. Please. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the end of summer. The shepherd's going to play his last summertime Jews harp solo.
summertime, yeah. Everything is really normal. Everything is hotsy-totsy now, yeah. Or the Mets are 42 games out of first. They're working their way into the American Association. In the good old summertime when Cleon Jones' average is falling and Eddie Crane pulls. Well, he's Eddie Crane pulls. In the good old summertime. <laughs> In the good old summertime, yeah. With the action out at the old Dairy Queen gets wooden hot and everybody is buying nothing but Jimmy's and all the whole, you know, everything, man. In the good old summertime. In the good old summertime. When they are bumper to bumper on the Jersey Turnpike, heading from nowhere to nothing, just sitting out there blowing their horns in the good old summertime. Ba, 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 da, in the good old, in the good old summertime, yeah. When New York is a summer fist fight in a good old summertime, yeah. In a good old summertime in Fun City, yeah. When the cigar butts are knee deep on Sixth Avenue in a good old summertime when Times Square is unbelievable in a good old summertime. Read up, Marty. any other kind of air. You know, the guy grabs the wrong knob or, <laughs> you know, you could do a lot of great things in an airplane, but we'd like to salute a, a Belgian Air Force wing commander. And that's a pretty big guy. A Belgian Air Force wing commander on a training flight in a Swedish aircraft Wednesday fumbled under his seat to tighten his safety belt. And all of a sudden, a little echo chamber, Marty. Boom! He was catapulted through the cockpit hood, 250 feet above the plane into the sky. And I grabbed the wrong knob. As he parachuted to safety, looking a little nervous, a shaken Swedish flight sergeant sitting in the back seat who had never flown one of these planes before, Bengt Donberg, landed the Saab Jet 105 trainer with a gigantic gaping hole in the cockpit hood. The Swedish Air Force, reporting the incident, said that the Belgian officer named Wing Commander Duelheis, had inadvertently pressed the ejector seat release button. His helmet saved him from serious injuries, and he was only unbelievably embarrassed. 
And we now quote the Swedish officials, and I kind of think this is the ultimate and cool, uh, <coughs> Brack, <coughs> uh, <coughs> this is a Swedish spokesman getting ready to, you know, speak for thousands of microphones, <coughs> Brack. I'm sure that uh, he will find the incident amusing in retrospect. He'll find the incident amusing in retrospect. Can't you see him ten years from now sitting around a bar, you know, drunk as a skunk, and he's talking to these two guys. What you should have seen today is the day I grabbed the wrong buttons in the Swab 105 jet fighter. Zoop up of the air and go. Oh my God, it was a fantastic thing. And the sergeant, you should have seen the look on the sergeant's face when I left. I was going up, you know, 500 feet. He looks up at me and says, Where are you going? I says, Oh, guy, I'm going out right. I the wrong button, you know. And he says, Well, I'll tell you. I'm sure many people find head-on crashes amusing in retrospect, especially if it got their Aunt Clara. In the good old summertime, well, you know Aunt Clara, she was getting kind of a drag. You know, uh, speaking of uh, <laughs> what, what are the what are the great things about living in this town, and and uh, I don't know whether you guys, you know, appreciate some of the really richer things about living in New York. This this is a town that is rich and ripe and great tradition. It's just a, it's just you know everywhere you look. You can, you can palpably feel the tradition in this town. For example, we got a, a tradition in this town of tough guys. Thugs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, did any of you get a chance a couple of weeks ago or so to see uh, a movie on one of the late channels, you know, late movie channels, about, uh, well, it was, it was starring Betty Hutton called The Incendiary Blonde. Get a chance to watch that? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, the mob in this thing. You have Texas Guinan. It was about Texas Guinan. And Texas Guinan was a famous lady of her day. And uh, one day I'm sitting in a camp. Now, if you don't know who Texas Guinan was, uh, don't immediately call up and write and all that jazz and say, Yes, I remember. You must be my age because I... No, Texas Guinan is a very famous figure in folklore in America. And uh, yes, uh, she really is. And Texas Guinan had a famous nightclub in the middle of Manhattan. And it was called Texas Guinan's, according to what they said. Now, don't, uh, don't immediately think I saw I never saw a place. It was well before my time. I'm just telling you, this is a famous story. It's like, uh, she's like Babe Ruth, you know, famous chick. And uh, she ran this nightclub. And they had scenes in this movie of, of the mob moving in. And it was one of the very few scenes in movies that I've ever seen where the with the real, the, the real klutziness of the mobs was shown, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the saddest, silliest pictures I've seen in years, a couple couple of months back or a month or so ago on TV, they had, uh, they tried to do Al Capone, you know. Can you imagine Jason Robards as Al Capone? <laughs> well, he was even funnier than you think. <laughs> he was about as convincing as my Aunt Min, you know, trying to play King Kong. But nevertheless, yeah, he... He just didn't quite make it as Al. And, 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 and George Siegel, who's a friend of mine and, and a very elegant, fastidious type guy, he's trying to play a Chicago trigger man. About as unbelievable as Mickey Mouse getting a job, you know, to play Paul Newman in a remake of HUD. It was a bad scene. But that, nevertheless, was a very uh, inadvertently funny, in a lot of ways, 
uh, and they tried to reproduce, you know, how tough the mob was, and, and you just get, you never got any pity. They, they, they were tough at all. There was a Technicolor, and they had these little pop guns and stuff. But I want to tell you, in, in Incendiary Blonde, this mob, you see, tough guys, man, uh, walk in, and they take over the club. And the way they did it, you know, totally without any any grimacing, you know, no, no Peter Falk bits, you know, none of this stuff, you know. They just walk in, and they says, we want to talk to you. And the guy who ran the club says, what, 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 what yes, sir, what about? I just want to talk to you. Come on back to the office. And they go back to the office, and the club is going, everybody's running around wearing paper hats, and the band is playing, see? They walk back into the office, and the, and the mob guy, see, he looked very smooth, by the way. He didn't have that, you know, the evil look of a Jack Palance. And he just looked like a, like, a little bit like a defrocked insurance man, you know, a little bit like your equitable man, you know? He arrives back there and he looks around, saying, the office is great. I said, not bad. And then he showed you how the mob really works. All he did was just sit down in the boss's chair. Lean back, says, not bad. Reaches into his pocket and he takes out a paper. Here, sign this. Guy looks at it, he says, well, what do you mean? It's a contract to buy the joint. I don't want to sell. Sign it. So you want to sign it now? If you don't sign it, in three minutes it's going to be... How much does it say there? It's just 25000 Three minutes it'll be twenty. In five minutes it'll be fifteen. In ten minutes... Well, they tell me there's a lot of room at the bottom of the Hudson. Did you hear about Jaime last week? Unfortunately, he fell into a concrete mixer. They tell me Jaime's at the bottom of the river. They also tell me there's a lot more room there. Better sign the paper. He signed. <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> Played very cool. See, real cool. Well, did you see the little bit... In the paper recently, if you're out of, uh, you know, if you're not in New York, you might have missed it. You know, this whole Colombo thing, you know, whole business is still being reported in the paper. See, it says the improved health of reported mafia boss Joseph Colombo has caused an epidemic of, quote, yellow fever and upset stomachs among the underworld, according to law enforcement intelligence circles. These sources report that the underworld is busily arming itself in fear that Joe Colombo is going to recover and come out and lead a retaliatory war against his enemies. Cops have re have arrested over a dozen, quote, healed hoods in recent weeks. You know what a healed hood is? That's a guy that's carrying, man. He's carrying artillery, ranging from teenage torpedoes to the usually mild and unarmed numbers runners, one of whom was in his 80s. The nervousness, and listen to this, here's, here's where the great touch comes in. The nervousness of organized crime has led to some odd incidents. On Monday, a mob-owned police dog, kind of like this tough police dog, you know, he's in the mob. A mob-owned police dog was seized by FBI agents making a routine check on a Manhattan gang hangout. A suspicious agent peeked under a chest bandage on the dog and found a fully loaded 38 caliber pistol. The dog was healed. He was carrying artillery around. 
when none of the men present admitted ownership of the gun-toting canine, he was turned over to the ASPCA. Can you imagine this tough mob police dog arriving at the ASPCA? You know, they got all these cocker spaniels and these little mutts sitting around. This big, tough dog walks in. They've just divested him of his thirty-eight. Can you can you see the rumors among the dogs? Oh, look, he's a police dog. He's a double. He's a police dog, and he's working for the mob. Who can you trust? Who can you trust? And the big old tough police dog sits there picking his teeth. A gun-toting dog. <laughs> well, you know, I saw that thing, and I. I read that piece and I thought to myself, oh boy. You know, I, I suspect that most people have never felt the brush of the organized mobs. It's all stuff you read. You know, cute little cutie pie little stuff like Breslin writes. You know, the, the, the mobs are just kind of lovable guys, you know. Big Augie and little Freddy and all that stuff. Just lovable, nice guys. <laughs> That's a myth, you know, that has persisted since the days of Damon Runyon. Uh, and, it, and it continues to, it's almost always written by New York writers. You know, this continual myth that, that actually these guys are just kind of lovable guys and they can't, uh, they don't know how to run their business, you know, the gang, the you. Oh, man, I want to tell you. I would tell you about the time I got scared out of my, almost out of my bird one time about this thing, this, the, the mob scene. You want to hear about this? Well, I shouldn't tell you this. <laughs> There's a lot of things you don't tell, let me tell you. Uh, is it time yet, uh, Jerry? You let me know. Is it, is it time yet? Yeah, yeah, well, okay. This is WOR. I ought to give another station break so when the mob hits, they hit the other station. Yeah. This is WOR, New York. <laughs> 710 on your jet action dial. Uh, that means we get the jets. When I'm not here, the jets are here. And they don't win any more than I do. However, uh, nevertheless, it's a funny scene, you know. It, it One day... This was when I, you know, I was just getting started in this business, you know. And I was doing a show from a nightclub. I, this is, uh, I, almost all my shows I used to do is for nightclubs, live shows. You know, I used to do it, not not, uh, not remotes, anything like that, you know, with a band. I used to be the shows. Yeah, I'd be up on the stage and doing the whole thing, see. Well, one night, I'm in this club, and I'm working away, see. And this is in a large city, which... Uh, I'll have to invent a name because I don't want you know I don't want the city to get a bad name just from some rotten thing I say. Let's invent a name, some improbable name. Uh, oh, uh, Lois Lobovia. No, that's too obvious. Um, so I got to invent some name that just has no meaning at all. Uh, Philadelphia. How's that sound? Does that sound like a suitable kooky name, right? All right. Uh, let's say, let's assume this mythical city of Philadelphia. See where I was working. I was in this club and. Uh, Nightclub. This is this is on a on a quiet midweek night. Now anybody who's ever worked in nightclubs knows that, uh, that, that, that there's a sag in the middle of the week. See, there's a whole lot of guys who rush out. Believe it or not, Monday is not the slow night in a club. These are guys who have come out to drink, you know, to drink themselves insensible on Monday night because the weekend hasn't worked out. And uh, <laughs> you know that's right. There's a whole bunch of guys who come. Oh, I gotta get out. Gotta get out of the house. And the next thing you know, they're in the club on Monday night, and they're getting bombed and yelling and hollering. Well, I could tell you stories for hours about working in a club. You know, it's stuff that you never hear uh, comics ever tell about. Like the time I was out on, on stage and I was doing my bit right here in in town in a, in a review I was in. And in the middle of this bit that I was doing, 
This guy got up, say, all of a sudden, I see him stand up in a very elegant club. He stands up, and he has in his hand a shrimp cocktail. You know what he ice? He takes the shrimp cocktail. Very, very elegant guy, and he's he's hurling obscenities, and he's hollering at this chick, "You, you tramp!" And he's hollering at his wife. See, he jumps up, and she's wearing these sables and all this stuff. You know, you know nightclubs are sitting there with a the champagne, and he takes the shrimp cocktail and he just turns it over and spam, he slams it right on top of her head. And she's sitting there with this glass on top of her head, the shrimp cocktail, and the shrimps are falling down over her, you know, her, her four-hour hairdo. You can just see she's got one of these big uh, hairdos. And the shrimp cocktail comes down, and, and uh, some guy is sitting at the next table says, Hey, why don't you give her some cocktail sauce? You can't eat uh, you know, them shrimps without nothing on it. And with that, he stands right, and he reaches down, and he grabs this this uh, thing full of, uh, you know, shrimp sauce, you know, this uh, red stuff, hot stuff, and he pours it on her head. <laughs> Well, just about the time he's pouring this, the shrimp cocktail, I'm in the middle of my bed, see. The back door slams open, and 1,200 cops at least come pouring in. And, and this guy, somebody called the police immediately, see. And he turns around, and he starts yelling at the cops. With that, see, he's turned his back on his wife, see. With that, she reaches over, and she grabs from the next table a bottle of champagne, which was in the champagne bucket. And immediately the entire crowd says, look out! And just about as he starts to turn around, pow, he gets it on a noggin with a champagne now. She's got a shrimp cocktail on his head. He's got a bottle of champagne dribbling down over his ears. And he's standing in the middle of the floor. She didn't knock him out. You know, in the movies, they always get knocked out the minute they get it about. The, the bottle just bounced off this guy's head. It went like that. You know, it's a very great thing. The only time I've ever seen anybody really get hit with a bottle, you know, and I, I'm, I'm so conditioned to movies that anytime anybody gets hit with a bottle, the bottle breaks and the guy falls down, right? You notice. It doesn't happen in real life. It went, oomk, bounced off his head. <laughs> champagne is now pouring down her arm. See, she's got it holding up like that. The champagne is pouring down her arm. It's running into her bra. The champagne is pouring out. She's got a shrimp cocktail on her head. She takes the bottle. <laughs> she hits him again. It goes, oomk. He turns around, and he said the greatest night, he, the greatest line of the night. None of us comics could top it. He turns around, he says, in a very suddenly, a mild voice, he says, stop that. <laughs> and what was even funnier, she did. And there they stood. And the police sergeant says, now don't you feel silly. Look what you've done. <laughs> the cop, he didn't want it. And she says, I have to get my dress clean. It's got shrimp cocktail sauce all over it. She starts to cry. And then with that, the husband says, there, there, honey, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. I'll buy you a new one. And all the while, I'm standing up on a stage with egg all over my face. <laughs> because somebody threw an egg at me in the middle of that scene, see. So, I mean, it just began to build up. Oh, my God. And then the night, you want to hear another one? The night I'm up again. I'm up, uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I've never told this stuff on the air. One night I'm, I'm in the middle of a bit, seeing again in the nightclub. This was not in Philadelphia. This was here in town. And uh, I'm working my way up there. And all of a sudden, a lady stands up in the middle of the crowd. Very distinguished looking lady. She had pearls and stuff, you know. That's the kind to go to these clubs, you know. She stands up in the middle of this very dramatic bit I'm working on. See, she stands up and she says, Where's the John? She shouts, and just as she gets it up, Where's the John? Her eyes closed, and she fell face forward like a redwood tree. 
that has been cut off at the roots. She just fell face forward, right down on a table of a large group of uh, big spenders, big butter and egg men from Queens who were sitting there with their ladies. <laughs> the crowd roared, and there I am again, see. Well, it wasn't more than three weeks later. I am, I'm working away, and a waiter comes out of the kitchen. This is something that the nightclub comics always has to fight. You know, waiters coming out of the kitchen, see. So the waiter comes out of the kitchen. Again, I'm in the middle of a big bit, scene, And the crowd is roaring. I'm working them up, see. I'm just ready to hit the punchline, see. Oh, this is, something, this is something that makes guys flip. I'm just ready to give them the zinger, you know. When all of a sudden, out of the swinging doors comes this waiter. Well, it just so happened that next to the swinging doors was a phone booth, which was a terrible place to put a phone booth. With that, he comes out of the swinging doors with a tremendous tray over his head, covered completely with spaghetti and pizza. He must have had 400 different plates of different types of spaghetti. Spaghetti with clam sauce, spaghetti with tomato sauce, spaghetti with old shoes. They served that there, too. Spaghetti with the dish rags, every kind of spaghetti. See, with all kinds of gooey stuff. He had about five or six pizza pies all over the place, 19 bottles of beer, you know. He comes out of the kitchen. He's swinging away when all of a sudden this drunk sticks his head out of the, out of the phone booth. <laughs> Says, hey, uh, uh, you got a dime? With that... The waiter, who was a little thrown off balance by that, he falls over and into the phone booth. Goes the entire tray. The drunk is sitting there, see, over the phone. Goes the entire tray. Pow! With the spaghetti. With the, with the pizza. <laughs> well, you know, it was such a fantastic moment. Because it, it was in front of everybody. They could all see it, see. After the show, a guy comes up to me, see. And he's in the business. The guy was an agent from MCA. He comes up to me, see, and he says, hey, Shepard. And I said, he says, hey, listen, that was a great bit. That great, great bit, you know, the one you set up with the with the waiter and the drunk. And the, it's a fantastic bit. He says, keep it in the act. That's great. I said, don't worry, Manny. We got a billion of them. <laughs> well, anyway, I'll tell you the story of the mob, though. You want to hear this one? One night. I'm working in this place, see, and this is a mythical city, as I say, I, I just have to think of that, because I don't want to, you know, malign a city. We'll call it Philadelphia, and I'm working in this club, see, and uh, everything's going along fine. It's been going along for a couple months, fine, see. And uh, one day, in the middle of the thing, see, it's a quiet midweek night. Now, this is the sag of the nightclub world. The nightclub world sort of gets saddle sprung, you know, it gets sort of sags around the... Uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. I mean, you could you could uh, you could you could you could shoot shotguns off in the average club on on say Tuesday night and never hit anybody. Even the waiters are asleep, you know. So uh, here it is. It's a it's Wednesday night. Nothing's happening. It's a quiet night. When I see suddenly, I'm up on the stage. See, when I see the door, they had a big uh, kind of a fancy door, you know, off to my right there, where they where the people would come in and be shown their tables. See, there's a lot of empty tables. And by the way, uh, that's a, an old nightclub comic gag, you know. Some guy will come backstage after he's been working out in front, say, and he's got his hands over his eyes. And uh, you'll say to him, uh, what's the matter, Moni? What, yeah, what's the matter, Morty? And Morty will say, oh, I got my snow blindness back again. Snow blindness means there ain't nobody out there, and you're looking at nothing but empty white tables, see? <laughs> Oh, I could tell you funny stories about about the moment that a, that a comic, you know, I'm sitting backstage ready to go on stage one night, and the comic who I followed, see, we both had uh, things that we were doing in this review, 
Yeah, we were. I was back in the dressing room, and I could hear a, a dead silence out there. And I hear this guy working. See, he's working away. He could say, "And that Manny Sister Morty," and he's going away. Boop, boop, he's blowing his little horns and stuff, and he's got his whole act. Not the dead silence. And suddenly he's through. See, I know that his cue. I says, and then I said the word. That's enough for that. That's his big laugh. Nothing. Silence. See. Well, then the band goes, and he comes through the door. I'm about to go out, and his face is white like chalk. He says, don't go out. He says, don't go out. I says, what's the matter, Joey? He says, I bombed. Bombed. Don't go out. They're waiting for you. They're made out of stone. Don't go out, please. And the band is going, da 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 These are terrible moments. And you have to go out, you know. You gird your loins and you go out. And I look down and there's nothing but ten cigar store Indians sitting down there. Made out of solid stone. Angry looks. Now it's my turn. <laughs> oh, man. You never hear about these things, do you? Oh, these, these are, have you noticed that, that comics always have a curious look in the eye? Look carefully the next time you're... You're looking at some show, and some guy named Morty Morty is out there, or Jackie Jackie or something. Look him close in the eye, and you'll find that everything about him is laughing and hollering. His arms are waving, he's blowing his horns, you know, and he's tooting his things, and he's reading his jokes, you know, all that stuff. But you look in the eye, and there's a curious sadness in the eye. That's because he has looked out over those vast seas of white tablecloths. He has looked down... And a great crowd of unsmiling faces of stone wooden Indians. Bombed. Well, I'm sitting there unsuspecting, about to have one of my great moments in this club. And I'm working away, see, I'm up on the thing there. And, uh, and you know, there's a, there's a few people, there's enough people in there. It's pretty good, actually, for Wednesday night. But enough to, so that you could see individual people coming in, see. So all of a sudden, I see coming in there. Now, I'm in the middle of this thing, see. You, because, you know, when you're working, your your attention becomes almost super tense, super hypoed. Uh, you see things that I guess even people sitting down there don't see. You see, you're conscious of everything, believe it or not. You're conscious of guys washing dishes out there, and you're conscious of stuff going on. Well, anyway, I see this, suddenly, I see this crowd in a very tight knot, a very tight knot, crowd comes in through the door and the first thing that hit me was they're all wearing camel hair coats <laughs> these long coats you know with hats it's fantastic do you know that mobsters really do wear these hats that you see i'm serious i don't know where they i raise my hand i raise my hand in abject humility to the sky may i be struck by a lightning bolt from <laughs> brad crandall uh, right now, yes, I'll say, he can throw lightning bolts. And I, I, I want to tell you, I, I sat there, and they came into, and instantly, it hit me. Somehow they were familiar. You know, it was a familiar sight. This little crowd of guys wearing camel hair coats with the big hats come in. And they, the waiter immediately takes them, and you can see the little talk, see? The waiter takes them to this big round table. In the back, in the shadow, see? They all sit down. They'll take their coats off, wearing the camel hair coats. They all sit down open up their coats, and a couple of them take their big hats off and lay them on the floor there beside them, see, and they just sit and look. And they have these big, wide faces, absolutely cold, unsmiling faces. They did not laugh once. They just sat there, see. 
I said, oh, my God, what is this? And I'm trying to do the accident. I said, oh, boy. I thought, you know, what is it, the Internet? Is it the, is it the Internal Revenue Service? What, you know? These, these uh, five guys just looked. And in the middle of them was a guy who was short and broader than the other. All the rest, he just sat there, see. Well, I finished my bit, and I'm about to beat a hasty retreat. When suddenly the waiter, who has taken these guys back to the table, he comes running up and he grabs my elbow. And he says, hey, hey, uh, uh, before you go back, he said, uh, Big Frankie likes you. I said, who? It's Big Frankie likes you. I said, he does? He said, yeah. He wants to have a bite to eat with you after the show. I said, who? It's Big Frankie. I said, who's Big Frankie? He said, you kidding? You putting me on? I said, no, who is Big Frankie? He said, you better go. You better have something to eat with him. With that, he scurried away looking scared. When I go back into the, you know, the kitchen dressing room we had like back there, and I get back in there, and one of the guys, the head waiter comes back, and he says, you better go with Big Frankie. Big Frankie has told one of his boys that he likes you, and he come in tonight to hear you. I said, who is he? He says, don't say it too loud, but Big Frankie owns the entire seaboard. Everything. I said, he owns everything? What do you mean? Is he like Rockefeller or something? He says, no, he really owns everything. Big Frankie runs the entire eastern mob. <laughs> I said, I thought this was all movie stuff, see? I'm going to have something to eat with him. Well... The show finally winds up, and I go out in front, and these guys are gone. Except for one guy is standing by the door, wearing a long camel hair coat. The waiter comes up to me and says, he's, he's one of Frankie's boys. He's waiting. I said, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. And I go running over to this guy. He doesn't say a word. It was a fantastic scene. I'm telling you, I'm not inventing one bit of this. This is absolutely true. He says to me, come on. That's all he said, come on. And we go out through the lobby of this place. And we get into a long, believe it or not, they have long black cars. You know, the kind that are always described in the police reports. The escape was made in a black, <laughs> black sedan of late model. Well, anyway, I get in this long black on the back seat, and there's a guy driving. I can hardly wait to see The Godfather, because, you know, I've seen a little of that scene. There's a guy driving. I thought, oh, oh, no. I know what happens. Every, every picture I've ever seen. Anytime they get Rod Steiger in the back seat of a car, it's curtains, you know. And I sit in the back seat. I'm sitting on the edge of the seat. And this guy doesn't say a word. Not a word. He never once opened his mouth. He just sat there. So he sat back against the cushions, and he's wearing his camel hair coat he's got a hat and he's of this indeterminate age you know just he just looks tough that's all just tough he just sits there he's looking out of the window and the driver starts to drive doesn't tell him where to go nothing we start to drive and I'm sitting there oh gee what did I do Big Frankie likes me we drove about four blocks just like that just four blocks and we stop in front of this deli it was an all-night deli, a well-known one. We stop in front of, which is usually filled with people. We stop in front of, there's not a soul in there. I get out of the car, 
The guy who's with me gets out in front of me, see? He says, come on, Big Frank, he's waiting. We go through the swinging doors, and the place is empty. Except for the booth at the far end, next to the wall, where nobody can get behind him. <laughs> next to the wall. And I see this guy, the same guy that was in the middle of the crowd, of that little mob that came in and sat through the show. And he's just sitting there. He's wearing his camel hair coat, which is open. He's just sitting. And I am escorted back to his booth. And he says, Hi, how are you? I said, Hello. <laughs> it's kind of nice of you to invite me to have something to eat. I, I always have something to eat after the show. And, gee, it's uh, kind of nice of you to invite me like this. Sit down. I sit down. He doesn't say, I am. He, you're supposed to know who he is. It's just like, you know, you're sitting in front of God. God doesn't have to introduce himself, you know. He does not have to say, uh, my name is God, I'm glad to meet you. You know, you just got hit by a truck and I'm here to decide what's going to happen. None of this stuff, see. So I sit down at the booth. I just sit down, see. And it's a, it's a regular deli, see. It's not a fancy joint, you know. It's a deli. And instantly a waiter comes over with a white towel over his over his arms. And he's standing there, very nervous. He says, uh, can I help you? But what is, do you wish to have something to eat? And with that, what do you think mobsters eat? Well, Big Frankie says to the guy this. Bring me my usual. And then, what do you want, kid? So you like the Fred Allen special. It's not bad with a Russian dressing. You like it pretty good. They make it good here. Get, get him up. Get him up, Fred Allen, with a lot of Russian dressing on the side. Uh, man, hurry up, Mo. Come on, let's go. And I want to tell you, that waiter, I have never seen a waiter move so fast in my life. That guy was a blur. Now, I have trouble with waiters in delis. I had one one time hit me with a fork just because I wanted, you know, some more celery tonic. But uh, this waiter, he just went zap. He's gone. <laughs> I can't figure out why the place is empty. And the other guy, the other guy that introduced us, you know, that brought me in, the, the guy that sat in the car. The car is still sitting out in front, remember. He is now sitting in the next booth. He does not sit in the booth with me and, the, you know, Big Frankie, because after all, you know, he does not sit next to the emperor. He is sitting in the next booth, and he's just sitting there watching, you know, just looking around. And, of course, to make conversation, I said to Big Frankie, I said, to, yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of a nice place. Uh, I come here a lot. This, and, you know, I've been here a lot of times, and I, I'm surprised, you know, it's usually you're kind of filled with people. Uh, it's kind of an off night tonight, but, uh, you know, so I like to eat alone. I said, hey, well, excuse me, Big uh, Frank, I mean, <laughs> Biggie, I mean, uh, Frank, uh, Mr. Frank, Big, Mr. Big Frank, uh, excuse me, uh, you like to eat a lot? Yeah, I don't like people around when I eat. Then I realized the place has been cleared. They just run them all out. Big Frank's coming in. So uh, I'm waiting to see what his usual is. I'm sitting here, I don't know what he wants, you see, that's the whole point. These guys are very, very quiet. They never say much. They do not come in, you know, and, and do the, you know, the Rod Steiger bit when he's overplaying the gangster, you know. The business, all right, where do you think you are? Come on, you know, I hit you now, out of the mouth, you know. Yeah, they don't do that. They never, they don't have to do that. That's, that's movie, that's greasy movie stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. When you see the real article, you know what the real article is. He doesn't come in, you know, and hit you in the mouth and all that stuff. He just looks you in the eye and it's all. And you know where the you know you you know where the dog is buried you know there's no yeah no fooling around so he looks me in the eye and he says uh, 
I've been waiting for him to say something, see. Because you like this sandwich here. So make it special for me. You like it. I want to tell you, friends, I have never seen a fatter sandwich in my life. They make a special one for Big Frank's friends. It's about two and a half feet thick. I think they sliced up a whole turkey, you know. <laughs> turkey, there was liver sausage, there was everything. Uh, black caviar, the whole bit's a fantastic sandwich, about maybe two and a half feet thick, you know. Now, I had had that same sandwich in that place before, and it usually came. It looked a, it looked a little bit like a postage stand that had been on a diet. But this one, wow, you know, it came out of a great big plate. It had pickles all over it and birds and roses and a whole bit on it, you know. They poured champagne on the top. So they, you know, they want to make sure Frankie, <laughs> he says, do you like this sandwich? And then they gave, they gave him what he had. What do you think a mobster eats when he's relaxing in the quietness of an evening? Well, he had a whole cantaloupe. <laughs> and it came as a whole cantaloupe, a big cantaloupe, fantastic cantaloupe, see? And I might point out it was out of season. <laughs> I mean, they probably, they probably sent Greasy Thumb Louie out all the way to California that instant to get him a cantaloupe, you know. And he just came back on a special kind of a jet or something because he has a big cantaloupe. And I'll never forget what happened after that moment. He just turns around. He just looks at the guy. He says, uh, Al. And with that, Alec, or Al, or whatever his name is, the other mobster, see, he jumps up and he runs around. See, the one thing about Mr. Big and the mob, he does nothing for himself. He jumps up and he whips out of his, his coat, this camel hair coat, he whips out the damnedest knife I ever saw in my life. He just goes, whap, and his knife comes out. He's got, <laughs> oh my, oh my, you know, I never saw a folding bread knife. He just goes, whap, comes out like that, see, and he just takes the... He takes the cantaloupe and he very carefully slices it down the middle for Big Frank, see. He slices the cantaloupe and he takes the two halves and he takes the seeds. Now, where do you hear this? He takes the seeds and he just dumps them out on the floor. Plop, plop, plop. <laughs> and he lays the two cantaloupes down in front of Big Al or Big Frank. He just lays them down, see. And Frank starts to eat I have never seen in my life anything like the way this mobster ate that cantaloupe. He, he ducked his head, see, and he had a spoon. His face was about, I'd say, not more than an inch and a half from the cantaloupe. And he's going, he's slopping in the cantaloupe. And I could see the cantaloupe seeds flying up around his face. And then he, he'd come up for air once in a while. He says, ah, oh, it's a sandwich, kid. He's it was like watching a carnivorous animal feed. He finished the two cantaloupe halves, and all the while, you know, I'm I'm so nervous. I, I you know, I'm sort of nibbling around the edge of the sandwich. Say, I don't want, I don't know, I don't want to, you know. Yeah, I'm just sort of nibbling it. I didn't, I'm tasting. And he finishes, and he turns to me then, after he wipes his face, you know, he wipes his face on a tablecloth, you know, and he spits on the floor. He he looks me in the eye. Says, you know, kid. You're all right. I listen to you. I listen to you every night. You're funny. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Big Frammy. <laughs> Call me Frankie. <laughs> thanks, Frankie. Glad you like uh, what I do. I. <laughs> You're funny. 
Keep your nose clean, you go far. <laughs> I blow my nose a lot. I certainly do. I, I, I uh, yes, sir, I wash my nose every couple of hours, you know. I make sure that nothing happens to my nose. Yes, sir. You're funny. You're funny, kid. Al. Al. Take him where he wants to go. That's it. I get up. And I follow Al out of the door. That swing door. And I can see the waiters, about three waiters, looking with scared eyes from behind the, from behind the counter, see. They're looking out. And I go through the swinging doors, and there's that big black car, I see. The door is wide open. The driver, who has not said one word through the entire evening, just sitting in the front seat, saying nothing. I notice next to him, Oddly enough, you know, of course, he's a businessman. You could tell he was wearing a business suit. And he had a briefcase just laying in the seat next to him. I suspect, you know, it contained leases and uh, his checkbook and stuff like that. You know, it was a, kind of a bulgy briefcase. But nevertheless, I get in, I sit in the back. And Al turns to me and says, where do you want to go? They actually talk like that. He says, where do you want to go? I said, well, <laughs> Well, I couldn't tell you. What are we going to say, you know? I said, take me back to the club. You hear that? The guy up in front, he shrugs. I, I never saw a man shrug without moving. Magic. I, could, I knew he was shrugging, meaning, yeah, I got it, see? But he didn't move a bit. He just stares forward. And the car pulls out. We drive three or four blocks. He comes a different way this time. We drive around the block about three times. I guess they're cased in the front door of the club. They're just by sheer habit, you know. They cased the front door a couple of times, and I could see the two guys looking out. And finally, we arrive in front of the, the club where I was working, and uh, Al finally says something to me. He says, you know, kid, Big Frankie don't like many people. You're lucky. I said, <laughs> tell him, uh, gee, I'm, I'll send him a Christmas card. What's his address? And I... Don't worry. Don't worry, kid. He knows you like him. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad he knows that. <laughs> I, I, I sure do like him. <laughs> yeah. I get back in the club, and the manager comes out to me, and he says, Did he tell you anything? I said, No, he ate cantaloupe. He says, You what? I says, he ate cantaloupe. He says, didn't he say nothing? I said, no, just, just ate cantaloupe. He said, well, what did he say? Tell me exactly what he said. I said, well, he said, uh, you're funny. Is that all? I said, yeah. He said, oh, thank God. Oh. I said, what's the matter? What's the matter, Hal? I thought he was going to take over. I thought they were coming in to put the finger on us. I said, the finger? What do you mean? He said, well, just keep your mouth shut about this. And he disappeared into the middle distance, sweating. Never forget that night. That's a true story you heard tonight, friends. Absolutely every detail, and I'm not getting every detail true. Except, of course, the name of the fictional city. It's a fictional city. <laughs> it certainly was. 
And the name certainly wasn't Frankie, I'll tell you that. Because <laughs> I kind of liked him, too. I liked the way his ears stuck out from straight out from his head, see, when he was buried down into the cantaloupe. I kind of liked that. It was kind of cute, you know, like a feeding panda. And so about a week later, a week later, I go back to the same deli all by myself, see, with a couple of friends. Fantastic moment. I go back to the deli, see. Now, this deli, I hardly ever could even get a table in it before. You know, one of those things. What do you want? You know, you'd come in. Well, I'd, I'd like a table. Ah, table. What are you doing? You mind? Man, you know, Milton Burroughs here tonight. You know, that kind of stuff. Well, I walk into the deli, and a hush fell. And I want to tell you, I saw him take six people away from a table and throw them out bodily. And I was seated at a table all by myself with my friends. The word had gotten out, but Gene Shepard was liked by Big Frankie. And you don't mess around with guys that Big Frankie likes. Until the waiter comes over and says, what, what, what can I bring you? I said, maybe you want a Big Frankie specials. I said, yeah, 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 yes, sir, yes, sir. I got a turkey sandwich that was over six feet thick, dripping with Russian dressing. It came with birds, a side order of black caviar. Sliced onions, two dancing girls. Oh, man. This is W.O.R. in New York, fun city. You hear? I said W.O.R. You stay tuned for the news. You get it? At the tone, the time will be 11 o'clock. News in detail on the hour from the W.O.R. newsroom at Engels Reporting. First off, the weather in brief, sunny and mild is the outlook for tomorrow with partly cloudy